Welcome to the Existential Edge Podcast, presented by the United States Association for Small Business and Entrepreneurship. How is entrepreneurship transforming university environments? What are its most compelling lessons? How can an entrepreneurship program make maximum impact on its ecosystem and change the lives of students and others in the process? Join Patrick J. Murphy, Goodrich Endowed Chair, Professor, and Director of the Entrepreneurship Program at the University of Alabama at Birmingham as he hosts leading entrepreneurs from across the country and beyond for provocative and insightful discussions of these and other questions. All right. Welcome, everybody, to the Existential Edge podcast. I am Patrick J. Murphy, Goodrich Endowed Chair, Director of the Entrepreneurship Program at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. And today we have a fantastic guest. He is a uh, serial entrepreneur who has multiple projects going um, all at once, and we're going to learn about those. He is a futurist, and um, when it comes to the bleeding edge technology, like some of the virtual stuff that you see and deep fakes and avatars and really cutting, cutting edge technological applications. This is a guest who is well-versed in those. He has spoken at South by Southwest. He is a TED speaker and he is a very progressive thinker when it comes to entrepreneurship. And we're very excited to have him here today. His name is Ian Beecraft. Everybody, if you haven't heard of him yet, I'm sure that you will in the future. And Ian, we're excited to get to know you a little bit and welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me and for that wonderful uh, introduction. I hope I can live up to expectations. I'm sure you will. And, and so as the audience knows on this show, we have three principal sections of every single episode. Um, in the first one, we'll get to know you a little bit. We won't really talk about your entrepreneurial projects at first. We wanna get to know you on a personal level. We'll take about 15 minutes to do that. And then in the second section, we'll get into your entrepreneurial ventures and what you're doing and what you're building. And then the third section, we will get to the real meat of the, um, the episode, which is entrepreneurship education, which is what our viewership and our listenership are um, all really interested in learning about. And so without further ado, Ian, if you could um, go back in time, if you could, and just talk a little bit about who you are and including growing up and key moments in your life, anything about your values or your personality or your educational experiences that you've um, incurred or gone through over the years, give us a good sense of who you are at a, at a personal level and um, enlighten us. And, you know, we want to get to know you as an entrepreneur, but first we want to get to know you as a person. So please give us a good sense of who you are. Yeah. Well, thank you for that opportunity. Um, so, a good place to start is uh, as a kid, I wanted to have a job uh, since I could remember. I, I actually had to argue with my parents about letting me go and get a permit to work early and before I was 16, which didn't happen actually. They, they convinced me that that was not gonna be the deal. Um, but the moment I turned 16, I went out and I got a job and you know it was a glamorous job as a pool boy, basically. I cleaned pools at the community center and the locker rooms. Um, but I was working and I was making money and I was doing something where I was contributing to society in some way. And that gave me a lot of fulfillment. And it, it, that's always been a drive for me is to be contributing or creating in some way, shape or form. And um, that hasn't stopped. So definitely wanted to be doing something 
since a young age that the idea of just being in school wasn't really enough for me. Um, we'll probably go over this later when we talk about education, but I was a horrible student in certain ways. Um, I actually was able to perform very well in grade school and to some extent junior high and high school. Um, but uh, when the structure of that rigidness kind of went away, I struggled immensely in college. Um, I'm ADHD, so having that kind of structure is really, really helpful. Um, and the ability to recognize both the, uh, the blessings as well as the challenges of ADHD was something I had to grapple with until I was 22 when I finally got diagnosed. So I'd always had an idea that I looked at the world a little bit differently. I processed things a little bit differently than a lot of my, my colleagues, but I didn't really know what it was. Um, mm. So it wasn't until I was mid-college that I realized, oh, there's a name for this and there's a reason, um, which allowed me to do two things. One was harness the strengths of it and really understand what made that possible. And two, also look at myself differently. Um, as a student and as a young kid, when you don't know that the the reasons why something's happening, but you know that something's a little out of place, that has some impact on things like self-esteem, productivity, aspiration, and inspiration. And there was always this desire to do more, but I couldn't understand why I couldn't. And I've been very fortunate to be able to really dive deep into that, understand it and embrace it and be able to leverage that to entrepreneurial success. This and is gonna be really um, familiar to a lot of the people listening. Um, we all know that entrepreneurship students are often um, non-traditional in any number of different ways, whether it's uh, ADHD or a unique hobby or interest or something like that. But this idea of, being a little bit outside the mainstream is something that we're all very familiar with. And it, it's actually come up in other episodes. So um, it's really great to hear you talk about that because it's something that we as educators don't want to eliminate. We want to celebrate that. And, and so it's very interesting to hear that that was a part of your upbringing. I want to ask you though, you, you said you were really motivated to get a job like right away. Where did that come from? Um, I, always been um, in a hurry to grow up, to be quite honest with you. When I was a kid, I didn't want to be, I was able to socialize well, but I always wanted to be doing something that was two, three, four steps ahead of everybody else. Um, an example in kindergarten, uh, my kindergarten teacher, Mrs. Fry made us, um, if we wanted to get a prize from the treasure box, you had to come in with the numbers one through a hundred in sequential order written down. And then she would tell us, um, well, if the first graders want to do this, because it was like the coolest thing you could possibly do, get something from the treasure box. The first graders have to count to a thousand. And the second she said that, I'm like, hundred's not good enough. I'm going, I'm going for a thousand. And I spent like days writing it all out. And it became this massive roll of paper that was 15 feet long. And wow. I brought it in to my teacher and I showed her and she was just like, blown away. In that moment, she called the janitor of the school to bring in a ladder and put me up on the ladder and have me roll it all the way out and took a photo of it. And my parents still have that photo at home. Um, but that was like a hallmark moment for me. I don't think I understood the significance of it at that time because uh -huh. it was just me being like, I just, I want to know what's next. I'm in patience. I don't want to do things at the same pace other people are doing. And I just want to, I want to know, feel and see what is next for me. And I think I, the reason I wanted to do those things, I wanted to create the opportunities to do that because no one was just handing them to me. Right. Now, what about like, w w was it all you? Were you like a really solitary child that 
pursued whatever you wanted or was there any encouragement from teachers or family or friends or perhaps discouragement or other forces? What, what was the context you were in that compelled you to do these things so early in life? Yeah, I was very fortunate. Um, I had an amazing environment growing up. I have uh, two parents who are artists and academics. Um, my father's a musician and an administrator at a university. Um, my mom's a former opera singer and a special educator. So I got to also watch my mom go back to university um, in her 40s because she wasn't able to complete it when she was younger. And I watched her go through the whole process of getting a degree and then getting a master's and got a 4.0 um, all the way through. And that's actually where I learned discipline by watching my mom just completely throw herself into that while also taking care of two kids. Um, mm. There were certain Sundays where I was part of two different youth orchestras. I do Chicago Sym uh, Youth Symphony Orchestra in the morning, and then we drive 45 miles up north to Midwest Young Artists. And my mom would sit there the whole time, drive me there the whole time. And every time I came back out to the car or saw her waiting in the hallway, she'd have her nose in the book. And so that was where I learned both discipline, but also a passion for knowledge and the pursuit of education and curiosity. Um, and then my also being surrounded by art and artists and music, there was this uh, environment where there's an element of constant improvement and pursuit of something. So I think those two dynamics really um, impacted me to this day. And you were you were an entrepreneurship student and a music student in university. Is that right? I was. Yeah, I uh, I started as a music student exclusively, and then my sophomore year, I realized as much as I love this, um, it's brutally hard to make a living doing it. I had friends coming back from Juilliard and Eastman, even they were struggling. And while I was good, they were better, and I knew that the the calculus just wasn't going to work out if I wanted to make a, a comfortable living. So I kept it more as a passion than an obligation. Was it voice or did you play an instrument or multiple? Yeah, I, I played trumpet and piano. Um, trumpet was my primary instrument and uh, piano was my secondary and I played both classical and jazz. You know, I, I'm sure you've heard the, um, I've heard this statistic a number of different places, but music majors tend to be really good at programming, at coding, at technology. Um, do you think totally. your musical background has helped you as it relates to your entrepreneurial pursuits, which we're going to talk about here in a moment. 1000%. Um, I think that my musical training has helped me in a number of different ways. Um, also, my background in advertising and marketing. Um, those are things where you have to really understand people and the way they think and the way they operate. And being a musician teaches you how to break things down in a certain way that most other disciplines don't. There are some analogs. But the idea of taking something that is, let's say, a holistic symphony and then bringing it down to just your part and then just the four bars that you're working on at a time and then understanding the mechanics that make those things work and then the music theory that's behind it, there's just layers on layers on layers on layers. And being able to really work at the fundamentals where you're so highly attuned to the nuance of one specific thing you're working on in the moment and then you get on stage and you perform with your colleagues, none of that is going through your brain. It is all muscle memory. It is all about being in the moment and an incredible sense of presence and collaboration and connection. Um, I haven't found an industry that can come close to replicating that yet. That is fascinating. And I, I think as I listen to you talk, you you have like the creative side, right? Which comes from music and, and so forth, but you also have this 
what I might call need for achievement when you're talking about writing one to a thousand and career progression and wanting to get a job, which we tend to associate more with business. So you have like business and creativity all balled into one. So it's like a perfect storm for entrepreneurship. I, I'm also observing here as you talk that, you know, you, you wanted to get a job, you wanted to grow up fast, but I mean, correct me if I'm wrong about this. I think your, your entrepreneurial pursuits are not necessarily things that, um, how to, how to phrase this, senior generations are really into it's actually a lot of the younger generations so you've pushed to grow up fast so that you can almost be young at heart as part of your career you know what i mean it's almost like ironic in a way mm -hmm. oh yeah i mean we could have a whole therapy session on that there there are definitely <laughs> elements of of uh, the accelerating my childhood so that i could look back and see how i missed part of my childhood and try to regain that um but yeah you're absolutely right there there is always this fascination of how the world worked around me um and i think that was a big influence in my entrepreneurial endeavors as well um when i was a kid and didn't know what was going on i had this very strong sense that there was a set of rules to which the world operated and everybody was in on the game and knew how it operated except for me. And I think that's pretty common among people um, who have different uh, or differently learning able, like whatever uh, conditions they may have. And it, it was really a strong sense for me. And that was a big part of my push for trying to understand things the way that I did. And overall, I'm grateful that it turned into an actual passion where I gain joy from it instead of it being something that I'm trying to fill a gap with. Absolutely, that's really interesting. And so everybody, um, we're gonna take a quick break, but we've uh, gotten to know Ian a little bit and here in a moment, he's going to tell us about his various entrepreneurial ventures. Um, the, this show is called The Existential Edge for, for a reason. There, there's a logic for entrepreneurial decision-making that takes us into the domain of risk. and Ian is clearly a risk taker. He, he was trying to push ahead into uncharted territory since he was a, a young kid. And we're going to learn about how he is growing his entrepreneurial ventures in the same way, taking risks, learning from the steps that he takes. And then um, after we learn about his entrepreneurial ventures, we're going to learn about his views on entrepreneurship education. All of that right after this short break. All right, welcome back to segment two of our episode today with Ian Beecraft, um, futurist, entrepreneur, um, polymath, musician, and um, student of life. And so in this segment, Ian, what we'd really like to hear about is your entrepreneurial projects. We know you have several. Um, we wanna hear about all of them. We wanna hear about what they have in common and what they're, how they're different. And uh, if you could get a little bit um, practical about the steps that you, you that you took and you can go through them chronologically or in whatever ordering makes sense but let's go ahead and dive in and start talking about your entrepreneurial activity and I'll come in with some questions here and there and sure. um, I understand you may have some videos or other sorts of technological things that you want to show us go ahead and call those up when you're ready and before I turn it over to you everybody I want to let you know that we're using the Visible platform, which is a great platform for doing this, but we have not yet been able to figure out how to do the virtual backgrounds. But Ian is so good at technology, he was able to come up with a way to make it work. So he actually has a virtual 
background here for those of you who are watching the video version of this. So he's obviously a legit technologist and um, he puts that knowledge into his entrepreneurial ventures. So Ian, if you could go ahead and tell us a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey thus far. Sure thing, thank you. Um, so I, I actually thought about this uh, earlier this week and I have to say for a long time, I didn't really describe myself as an entrepreneur in high school and to some extent uh, part of college because I felt like my my own experience with entrepreneurship didn't match with what the typical narrative was. Um, but when I look beyond that, I actually disagree with that assessment. Um, I was entrepreneurial from a pretty young age, um, came up with lots of entrepreneurial ideas as a kid, and then started to execute on some of those in high school. Um, one of my first businesses, and uh, I think I can discuss this now because the statute of limitations has probably expired, um, but I sold modification chips for PlayStation and Sega Genesis which allowed people to play games that they hadn't bought. Um, and I essentially created a market for that. And I made some good money as a student, then realized I should probably turn to more, uh, let's say positive and uh, productive means of, of making a living. And actually started a DJ business with one of my friends in high school, which was pretty successful. And we did that for several years and grew it from just a couple of speakers to, I think we had acquired almost $40,000 worth of audio gear um, by the end of our senior year, which was now I'm thinking about it absolutely wild. Um, wow. That was fun. And then when I was in college, I actually was recruited into a program called College Works Painting, which is essentially uh, taking college kids and training them how to run their own franchise of the painting business. And I did that for four years. I did um, once as an intern, which was kind of running your first franchise. And then I did three years as a district manager, training other students, going to universities, recruiting them training them, going out and doing the work with them, helping them hire crews, helping them produce. I mean, it was literally soup to nuts running the whole business. And that was one of the most informative things I've ever done in my entire life. And actually still to this day, the hardest thing I've ever done. Mm -hmm. um, nothing else has, has compared in, in even what, building my own businesses. What was so hard about that? Um, so there were several things. One is it was a full-time business while going to school full-time. So I was doing a full uh, course workload. And then I would every single night do three to four hours of phone calls to potential clients on Saturdays and Sundays. I would do 12 hours of prospecting and sometimes estimating and learning how to estimate a project and having the confidence to come across as a reputable uh, contractor and knowing that stuff. The learning curve was lightning fast and incredibly steep. Um, and then when production season started in the summer, you had to learn how to basically break down an entire project mentor an entire team through a project, all your painters and all your contractors, and be able to be on the job site and learn that very, very quickly. Um, it was, I mean, it wasn't just a uh, fire hose that was taking in an ocean in one year. And that taught me if I could do that, there's literally nothing that I couldn't put my mind to and do no matter how hard it was. It was an experience I'm incredibly grateful for. There had to be like various other people and or, or teams or yes. community or a village around this talk a little bit about how you would partner with individuals in the earliest stages of these projects yeah so with the with college works painting there's already a, a large apparatus built around it it was uh, it was about a 50 million dollar company when i when i came into it and they would provide the training they had a district manager to mentor you there were general managers on top of that and then there was a company that did negotiation for your supplies, um, giving you the accounts you need to, to pay for it, your insurance. So there's certain things as an entrepreneur, you and individual college student, you didn't have to negotiate or worry about. You learned about them, but you didn't have to do it yourself. The, the things you did have to learn were the entire sales process, 
learning everything you possibly could imagine about paint, painting houses, remodeling houses to some extent, and then um, really learning people skills. The uh, ability to sit down and just talk and go and connect with somebody and also navigate what you're looking to achieve out of that conversation was something that was just drilled into us from day one. Um, and as a college student, as a 21 year old, I'd go and do six of these in one day. They were two hours long, sometimes longer, do an estimate, come back, propose, uh, give, show them the proposal, walk them through it and hopefully book the job. And we had some kids in this program doing 150, $200,000 worth of bookings in one year. And they'd produce all the work in three months. Um, so I think the, the record was $250,000 of the work. It might be higher now, um, but it was just being around that level of achievement as well also showed you what was possible because people, you know, you look around you and what you're exposed to in your environment sets the bar for you. And when you see somebody in a couple of neighborhoods down who's, you know, $60,000 ahead of you, your competitive instinct really kicks in and says, okay, this is possible. I'm not doing it. How do I get there? And, and so how many years ago was that project um, that was 2007 to 2000 2006 to 2010 okay and so how did that four-year period and all of that on early entrepreneurial activity for you how did that segue into some of your later ventures yeah so it's wildly different from what i do today um <laughs> it's not even remotely close but at the end of that i actually was sitting in a marketing class uh, surprisingly, and I saw a QR code. I said, what's this? I got really interested in it and figured I'm gonna check this out. So I got into looking more into mobile marketing and wanted to see like, what is this new technology happening? And there's just something called Bluetooth that was coming out of the time. It was becoming really important. So on a whim, I ordered this device called the, uh, the Blue Giga uh, Wireless Relay Access Point, the RAP Blue Giga server. And it was this server that you could send messages to cell phones or to Bluetooth uh, enabled devices. And I programmed, essentially it was like a light CMS for this thing. And I tested it in my dorm room and I was just kind of doing it for, for giggles and ended up sending messages to people in the dorm room using their cell numbers. I, I'm pretty sure I violated about 16 different laws and would have been sued by the FTC, but you know, it was my first experience. And I thought, man, this is wild. I could turn this into a business. And I tried turning it into a business for like ballparks, um, dealerships, malls, and other locations where getting a central point of information would be helpful on your phone. So like getting a map of the mall on your phone or getting a video about the BMW you're looking at, you can take home and show to your spouse, things like that. And that was the business model that I'd come up with. And um, unfortunately that was in 2008. So um, investment in new and unproven technology was limited. I had a couple of pilot projects, things seemed to be going well, but the other thing was it was an unproven technology and it was too early. Um, I was way, way, way too early on that one. And it became a spectacular failure. It was a business that I invested a lot of money on. I lost a lot of money on um, and it hurt them, but it's one that I'm really grateful for because it taught me not only about how to create something from scratch, but also to know that timing and luck are just yeah. as important as all the preparation you can possibly imagine. Absolutely. And so some of the things you're doing right now, um, I, I referred to them earlier in the earlier segment as bleeding edge, like really, really progressive stuff. How do you, um, I mean, I know you obviously learned about timing because of, of your earlier venture, but um, what are the kinds of things that are telling you? And we want to see some of this stuff, by the way. So if you have some video clips, sure. um, please uh, share them with us. But um, 
how do you know you're not too early with what you're doing right now? Uh, that's a great question. So um, first of all, I can't be 100% sure of that. Um, it's definitely one of those things you have to kind of hypothesize, test, and iterate. Um, the other thing is my function is a little bit different. So the the business, uh, my foresight company called Signal and Cipher is more of a consultancy slash media uh, company than it is a product company. So I've kind of de-risked that a little bit by saying, mm -hmm. I don't have to invest a lot in a product that might be too early that there might not be consumer adoption for. And I can also adapt a little bit more to like, what is it that clients are looking for? Um, what are the specific challenges that they're trying to solve for? And then I can extrapolate on what's happening now in the next six to 18 months to 36 months. And um, that's actually an area where I was really grateful for some of my corporate training uh, when I worked. Uh, corporate is really not the right word for it, but it is compared to entrepreneurship. I was in an agency environment for 10 years where they taught me about how to look at things and how you can operationalize things that look a little bit forward facing within short periods of time. Because our clients were paying not just for insights and not just for knowledge. They wanted to say, well, that's interesting and it looks amazing, but how can I make money from it? Right. And if you can't answer that question, then it probably is too early or you don't know enough about it. Right, that's a great demarcator right there. I mean, if you can't answer the question, how do you make money from this? It may be too early. So with Signal and Cypher, I mean, you don't have to name the clients, but what types of clients are you um, working with in that business? Yeah, so it's across the board, uh, several, yeah, advertising agencies are actually clients of ours. And it makes a lot of sense given my background. I've worked at several large agencies uh, in the past. So I've worked with some of them and also some new ones that have reached out. Uh, everything from doing helping them with new business pitches to understanding new and emerging technologies they can start to incorporate in their own advertising campaigns. Um, and also um, my favorite, that's probably the most exciting is some movie studios. Um, after having presented at South by Southwest, I had some people reach out uh, from the innovation departments of one of the major uh, stu movie studios and said, hey, you know, what you're talking about is the stuff that we're researching right now. And we want to be able to diversify our income streams and start to take the assets from these $100 million movies and bring that IP into a lot of these different spaces. Could you help us navigate that? So awesome. a lot of it, it's, oh, it's, it's amazing. It's a ton of fun. Um, it, it's really cool. So you're, you you did speak at South by Southwest. You just alluded to it. I mentioned it earlier. And we're talking about the new and emerging technologies. So um, how about if we take a look at a clip from your South by Southwest presentation? That sounds great. I'd love to. So this clip that we'll show right now is uh, something that some people will be very familiar with. And that's the concept of deep fakes. And in the, um, the talk, I actually start out with the concept of deep fakes because it's something that is uh, both controversial bleeding edge, but also popularly understood. And the point of my talk is actually how the technology behind deepfakes is the foundation for this renaissance of creativity that's happening right now. So there's a whole side, there's a dark side of this technology that we really need to be cognizant of. And I acknowledge that in the presentation, but my focus is more on the creative potential of using the underlying uh, technology of it. So the machine learning, the machine vision, um, the ability for machines to code themselves to some extent. And then what does that mean from a creative application perspective? So I take several things and actually apply them. Um, this particular example that we're going to show is a little bit about deep fakes and how that has advanced to full body deep fakes, audio deep fakes, et cetera. And then uh, I'll show another clip later where I actually take some of this and apply it to my own life. And it's not just for voices and faces anymore. In fact, you can make entire bodies move. 
Here we see Jason Bellini from the Wall Street Journal using the moves of Bruno Mars and applying them to his own body. It's also possible to do the same thing with voice. And now we have speech to text models where you can type in any phrase you'd like the algorithm to say, and it will replicate it in a very convincing audio. I am the best businessman in the world. So as the field advances, it becomes easier and easier to create very convincing representations of human beings. But it's not just being used to replace actors or be able to put them in new contexts. In fact, a lot of the same technology is being used to create digital beings that are entirely synthetic. Wow, fascinating stuff, Ian. Some of this technology is almost scary in, in what it's able to do. It um, reminds me of Black Mirror or um, like a Minority Report or the various movies that really dive into some of this stuff. Do, is it scary to you or is it just purely oh, absolutely. exciting? Absolutely, uh, it's, it's extremely exciting in many ways, but it absolutely scares the pants off me and, and a thousand others. Um, as somebody who thinks about this practically all day long, I can think of a thousand ways this stuff can be used nefariously. Um, and part of, as a result of that, part of my job and my mission is to help people educate people on what this can do. Um, when you don't know how it operates, it's so much easier to be manipulated by it. Um, right. But when you know how it operates, you can also start to contribute to the solution. So by being an educated populace, we can start to influence the decisions that shape everything from legislature around this, the infrastructure that helps create it, so that we can push this in a direction that's positive. Um, one of uh, my favorite futurists, Amy Webb, says that the future does not arrive fully formed. We get a say in the future that we want. Mm -hmm. And I do believe, um, in my experience, not enough people believe that. There are too many people that think the future is something that happens to them and they have to accept whatever they get. And it's just like any other system. If you participate, then you can help shape it. That's right. That's excellent. And so um, in the next segment, everybody, we are going to learn about how some of these technologies and some of uh, Ian's own lessons by working with from working with these technologies can be used when we educate the entrepreneurs of tomorrow. We'll see you in just a moment. Welcome back, everybody, to the Existential Edge podcast. This is the third segment of our episode. We are with Ian Beecraft today, the uh, CEO of Signal and Cipher and a number of other ventures. And we've learned about his, uh, his personal background and his values and his style. And we've learned about his entrepreneurial ventures. And he showed us some of the technologies that he works with in his venture. In this segment, we're going to talk about entrepreneurship education, particularly with regard to the current generation in university, um, who, who are the entrepreneurs of tomorrow. And if these technologies, like we're talking about with Ian, are emerging and becoming more and more relevant to the way that we work and do business, that means they're going to be a larger and larger part of how entrepreneurship is done in the decades to come. And that's what we're training students for. We're training them to thrive and survive in that future. So, Ian, I'd like to um, I'd like to ask you about your views on the state of entrepreneurship education today, as you see it, as one who hires and as one who works with students coming out of 
educational programs, entrepreneurship educational programs, and other programs in universities. Kind of riff on that a little bit for us, and then I'll chime in with some questions as you talk about it. But the whole purpose of this segment is to help our audience know what's coming in the future of entrepreneurship as it relates to technology. So we'd be really interested in having you um, talk about that. Absolutely, thank you. Um, well, the first thing for me is that the state of entrepreneurship education is actually very different than the state of education in general. Um, overall, entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship educators are focused on kind of seeing the horizon and adapting to that. And that's not very common for uh, a lot of education systems. If I take a look at uh, my own experience in other parts of my education, I didn't really experience that. There's a lot of uh, focus on fundamentals and code and structure, which is great, but there's not a whole lot of opportunity to talk about what is next and, and integrating those skills into your own skill set. And that's what I really appreciate about my own training in entrepreneurship is one, it was super hands-on. Um, I got a chance to work with real clients and do real projects and see how things really work and not just do exercises in a notebook. Um, but also it wasn't about rigid structure and teaching to a test or a specific syllabus. It was more about opening up your understanding of how business operates in the world, like really how that, that works. Um, you're speaking to someone who got a D in marketing, um, but now is the head of marketing for a beverage brand. Um, in addition to other things. So it, it the world can work in funny ways. And you alluded to this earlier, like the students and entrepreneurs, we are a little bit left of center when it comes to the way that our brains operate. And your worst students can be some of your best entrepreneurs. And I don't think that's a secret at all to, to entrepreneurship educators. That's something that's a little frustrating to a lot of other professors, especially in math and you know the hard sciences. Mm -hmm. um, but to those who are trying to unleash that creativity to help people become really good entrepreneurs, that's no surprise. Um, so with that said, I think that the entrepreneurship educators are actually very well positioned to create the models of education for the future, for the rest of the universities to look at, for the rest of the department say, hey, they're doing something really innovative. They're doing something really interesting. They're testing, they're hypothesizing, they're iterating and moving with that. Because um, I don't see a lot of other departments being capable of do, doing that, whether they have the permission to or not. So that's just kind of how I would uh, frame that conversation from my own perspective. Yeah, I, I think um, you hit on a couple key points there. I mean, as you know, I've been doing this for a long time and a lot of the people listening have been as well. And I, I think for those of us who have been in this world, we know that the entrepreneurship students are a little bit different. And I've actually told my colleagues that, you know, they're not usually honor roll types of traditional high achieving students. They're, they're high achieving, but it's squarely in the context of their own individual purpose, which may be unlike every other student that's out there. And the entrepreneurship students are not always comfortable getting out of their individual purpose or what they believe is important. And when they refuse to do that, sometimes it can come across as they're not good students or they don't follow the standard rules and, and that sort of a thing. But as entrepreneurship educators, I think we need to understand that. And then when we develop or redevelop classes and programs and curricula, we need to make sure that those students aren't, you know, they don't go by the wayside. Because if we, if we do it right, I mean, we're talking about an area that, you know, when you talk about inclusion and diversity, we can really set the standard because you have all different kinds of 
students and learning styles who are able to plug in and just be themselves rather than try really hard. And, you know, that can be stressful when you try really hard to be something that you don't enjoy or that you're just not really, you know, comfortable doing because it's not here, who here. you are, right? Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And and that's especially students who uh, work cognitively, cognitively differently or neuro, uh, neurotypical. Um, that's a struggle. That's not just an operation of like, I think differently, but that becomes an identity thing as well. If you're forced into a system that just doesn't work for you and you're told you're the problem, not the system, that actually can really crush a lot of creativity and set people back. Uh, for many years. I've seen that happen to people who have be, thankfully become brilliant entrepreneurs, but they had to do a lot of work to realize that it really wasn't them, um, that it was the system that they were a part of and that they once they really leaned into who they are and embracing that, which is a lot of difficult work, they were able to start to, to really thrive. Mm. Right. So what are some of the traditional experiences or traditional approaches in universities that ought to be reinvented or developed a little bit to be more aligned with entrepreneurship education? Um, well, I, this is, uh, I hope I can befriend a few uh, professors here because I'm going to, I'm going to beat up on management a little bit. Um, the requirements for many, and, and I, I've been out of university for a while now, my closest association is coming in and doing guest lectures at this point. Um, but often I've talked to professors who are required to have the whole syllabus pretty much locked in before the class even starts and sometimes like six months before the class starts and then you have to have all the work done it, it's an immense amount of work to do that i mean the amount of time professors put into that is insane and then by the time you start especially in a world like entrepreneurship or if you're doing something in technology everything's always changed the idea of teaching to a textbook is like i apologize but what a joke like a, a textbook in the tech space is just it's out of date before it even gets to the editor let alone by the time it hits the shelves. Um, so I think that, and I don't think this is gonna be news to anybody, but teaching experientially is so important um, and exposing people to, you know, people who are doing the work that they wanna see and wanna do is, is awesome. I was grateful that, you know, when I was a student, I saw a lot of people coming in. Um, we talked with Jason Freed, that was a, a really awesome moment uh, for me and to see like a really an entrepreneur I respected coming in and, and sharing their time. Um, so I think all of that really matters, but getting them out into the world too and getting outside of the four walls is so important. Right. Um, education, the the knowledge sharing can happen in those four walls, but the integration and the assimilation um, and the synthesis happens outside of it. And that's really where I think so much focus has to be. I guess in the spirit of full disclosure, um, you kind of alluded to it there, but um, we should mention that Ian is a former student of mine in the entrepreneurship program where I taught in Chicago at DePaul University. One of my fonder memories uh, at, at, uh, in college for sure. Yeah, you were, you, were, you were fantastic and it's great to see everything that you're doing. Um, and thanks for being nice to the way that I taught you. <laughs> I really appreciate it that you're not beating up on my, my methods or anything. But there's a lot of great educators out there and um, in, yeah. in USASB, which is our partner on this podcast. And, and all of them, myself included, are really interested in staying relevant and being progressive. Um, what you said about the syllabus is very interesting. In fact, that's, that's a practice of mine. It was even a practice of mine way back when around 0708 when you were my student, I, I generally make a rough draft of the syllabus and then 
the first class session is devoted to the class and me having a conversation about what we're going to do and where we're going to go. And I use the feedback to finalize it, right? And then it becomes kind of like the agreement that we put into place. But so much of it is based on who's in the room, right? The way I will teach a certain concept is going to be different based on who I'm talking to. And, and so I think what you're, what you're queuing in on here is we need to make entrepreneurship education not encapsulated and fossilized in the static content, but make it more dynamic by bringing in the unique experiences of the people who are in the classroom and let that guide you in terms of how you convey the material and instill the concepts in the students' minds. Is that right? 1000%. I think that the, the style of teaching should both represent and engage them in the types of concepts you want to teach. And if the teaching itself isn't, isn't entrepreneurial, then you really won't be able to create a, an environment for your students to be entrepreneurial. And what I love about that responsive way of teaching is it, it brings the students in to buy in and to be a part of the structure and construction of that education system. So it's not just what they've been used to for 20 some odd years of, I am professor, hear me speak. It's let's collaborate and build something together, just like, oh, a business, as you would with, you know, when you're creating something new. And I think by exhibiting those behaviors and creating something they can see, sometimes they don't even realize they're doing it. And all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh, this is what I need to be doing to build a business. And for some, it takes some of the fear and the uncertainty out of building a business because to some that's super scary. And to others, it's they actually get to see the machinations at work. They're already fascinated by the idea, but they just want to see it in action before they can do it themselves. And you mentioned outreach earlier. Um, talk a little bit more about how you view the importance of outreach-based entrepreneurship education. Absolutely. Um, it goes back to you can't really understand what you don't see. Uh, exposure and environment means so much. Um, I was also saying like when I was competing with my friends in College Works Painting, the bar was set based on what my environment was, what my um, friends were doing. And that's what uh, showed me what was possible. And to an even greater extent, when we see entrepreneurs in the flesh, standing in the room, talking with us, it changes a bit of the narrative. Um, I kind of hate the way entrepreneurship uh, and entrepreneur porn magazines kind of talk about entrepreneurship because there's such a, a, there's a lot of prevailing myths that they can tend to propagate, like the lone visionary genius or the amazing founder with this backstory that's you know crazier than a Hollywood movie. And those people do exist, but they are not the, the demographic sample we really want to be pulling from. And when you can see someone in the room with you, it humanizes them. And they can also start to engage and break down some of those myths as to what their origin story was. Because you might have read about them in Entrepreneur Magazine, but now you see them and you can see, you know, we're made of the same DNA. You've seen, done in some, seen some of the same things I have. Now I feel like this may even be possible for me. And without that, I, I don't think we'd get nearly the entrepreneurs we have today. Right. There's a, there's a great, like, um, saying or a, or a dictum, I guess you might call it, or an adage, uh, theory without practice is pointless, but practice without theory is blind. And I've always thought that, you know, you'll learn these theories in the classroom or concepts or frameworks, conceptual foundations and so forth, but they're really just depictions of reality. They're very 
stylized and homogenized. And it's not until you try to apply those through an outreach project or exposure to an actual entrepreneur that you see how they really look in reality, which will still reflect the truth of the theory, if you will, or the validity of the theory. But there's a lot of other things where it doesn't apply perfectly. So it it helps guide you and make you less blind when you're out there practicing um, and, and you need it. But if you just learn a theory without really seriously trying to apply it, it's kind of a pointless exercise or a you know parlor trick or something like that. Absolutely. And I think that theory is so important to a lot of students who, who need the ability to have structure and direction. Um, and I think what it also does, I mean, you talked about like being in the trenches with a lot of these people uh, as entrepreneurs. When you're a student and when you're in your 20s and early 20s, particularly, you have this view of the world around you where, you know, the corporations have everything figured out and it's cogs in a wheel and entrepreneurs who are successful. You see the final product. You see all the things already worked out by the time they're successful. You didn't see any of the stuff they went through. And if you work with a really early stage entrepreneur, you see how messy it is. And there's almost this period of time where you have this cognitive dissonance of, oh man, they don't really know what they're doing. <laughs> they don't have a clue. And there's almost like this uh, magnetic push away um, to, from that feeling. Cause you start to look and say, okay, well, I was hoping to see these things become clear for me. And then speaking personally, you start to realize, oh, wait a minute. That means nobody knows what they're doing when they start. <laughs> nobody does and then they kind of figure out as they go along oh my gosh that means this is possible right so what do we like the earliest stage of entrepreneurship when it's like you're not even planning it's like pre-planning as a young aspiring entrepreneur like like you were way back when we're gonna have students like that in our classrooms we do right now what what do you think are the first lessons we should try to instill. Um, you could talk about the entrepreneurial mindset. And if so, what, what makes up the entrepreneurial mindset? What do students need to get in their head early, as early as possible to put them on a better path for becoming an entrepreneur that can achieve whatever impact they want to make? Absolutely. Um, the, when I talk to classes, what, my last slide of the deck um, is uh, change is a constant and disruption is a guarantee the way forward is passionate curiosity. Mm. And for me, no matter what, I mean, the, the, the way of acceleration and progress is, is happening at an exponential curve so fast that we can't keep up with it. Um, and there are even different models of entrepreneurship that are now coming out uh, with Web3 and blockchain that are also fascinating too. But uh, to sidestep that specifically, passionate curiosity will win the day every single time. And that means things like leaning into your interests, always asking why, trying to figure mm -hmm. out what's underneath, um, you know, the, the, the surface level observation, because we can make observations all the time, but insights and places of tension are really where we find opportunities to create and create value. But you won't survive in entrepreneurship if you aren't passionately curious about whatever it is you're working on, the people you're trying to serve, the problems that exist. And that gives you the motivation and the fire and the drive to keep going at it, even when it gets hard, even when you don't have the answers, and especially when people tell you to stop. How do you think an educator cultivates passionate curiosity in students? You mentioned like, I think you alluded to like your your interests, leaning into your interests, and that 
you know, gets down to what makes an individual student unique. Um, is, is the trick really giving them a sense of individual purpose and that's what will motivate them to ask why or what if? Um, mm -hmm. Unpack that a little bit for us. That's a great question. Um, it's almost like going back to some of the, the principles of Montessori, you know, like letting children kind of find their way to, to gravitate towards something and in, inspiring and in, encouraging that. Um, one of the challenges about understanding individual purpose as a student, I'll be honest, I had no clue what my individual purpose was when I was in college. Um, and if I was to do an exercise about that, I think I would have been incredibly intimidated by it because I wouldn't know where to start. Even though the, the uh, elements, the organic components were there, it's really hard for a college student to identify those and put those together and say, this is my purpose. Some are more advanced in that than others. I think in the entrepreneurship courses, you'll probably find like a, a good bell curve where there are some that are just like, dude, I, I've known since I was two, this is precisely what I'm gonna be. And others who are like, I'm amorphous, don't know what I want. And some people are in the middle of like, you know, I, I finance, that's kind of what I wanna do, you know? Um, but I think if you can find some way to help them with that, then yes, I mean, you're also, you. Entrepreneurship is a laboratory to explore that in many ways. And uh, it's a hard thing to teach, but it is definitely something that can be encouraged. That's right. That's right. That's great. Now, those were great insights. I, guys, to the listening audience, you got to understand that Ian has tons of like technological things to, to, to show and to share. I, I think you have another clip or another video that you wanted to share. And I, I wanted you to have a chance to cue that up and introduce it, and then we'll show it. Yeah, so this clip is uh, about avatars and uh, the coming advent of avatar commerce. It's one of those things that's getting us closer to what uh, people are calling the metaverse. And that's these different realities, both virtually and physically, that are coming together to create both economies of their own, but also virtual experience that have a shared sense of space, of community and commerce. And there's an enormous amount of entrepreneurial uh, opportunity here as well, given how fast the space is growing. So I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, what avatars are, what they're doing, where the development is, and where the growth is likely to be um, with how we interact with these digital beings. So it's one thing to interact with an avatar, but it's quite another to be a fan of one, to follow one, to engage with one on a regular basis, or to buy tickets to see one. However, millions of people are doing exactly that every single day. Digital influencers had been around for quite some time, the most famous of which being Lil Michaela. But there are dozens of others. Some are K-pop groups like KDA. Others are branded digital influencers like The Gecko or even KFC. But the trend is growing and dozens and dozens more are coming out every single month. And the trend isn't likely to change. So soon, you may be interacting with an avatar at your local pharmacy. You may be seeing an avatar-driven performance online. And you may even be buying tickets to go see an avatar performing. That is fascinating stuff. So that clip was also from your South by Southwest presentation in 2021. 2021, Correct. is that right, Ian? Yep. Yeah, okay. this Brilliant, brilliant stuff. So um, do you think that kind of technology is going to find its way into the way that we teach in university in the decades to come, or is it going to stay pretty much in the agency sector or the, you know, advertising and all of that sort of stuff? 
I absolutely think it's going to be pervasive and ubiquitous. Um, the 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 software that used to just create video games is now eating the world. Um, just like software ate the world, physics simulations and gaming engines are now eating the world. And they're creating the worlds that will inhabit from augmented reality to virtual reality. Right now, it's kind of hard to have a collective experience um, where you're virtual and not in the same space. And that's kind of what the avatar space is allowing. It's starting with one piece of the puzzle, and that is your experience of another individual or another being. Um, in a believable, interesting, and compelling way. And as that evolves, I think that the ability to interact remotely with other people will become much richer, much more impactful, and will enable remote learning experiences like we've never seen before. I love it. You know, I, I often talk about technology. I'm no futurist per se, but I, you know, I think about things a lot. And when you talk about the advance of technology, it tends to become more and more social, does it not? Technology becomes more and more social. So the social realm and the technological realm are kind of integrating together as things advance. Is that right? Absolutely. Um, the idea of developing used to be a solo sport. The idea of a developer, if you thought in the 90s, was you know a guy in his mid-30s with a bunch of pizza boxes stacked up and a whole bunch of energy drinks you know, with no one else around. Um, now you look at developers and entrepreneurs and software engineers, and they're the Mark Zuckerbergs, the world for better or worse, or they're you know the twenty-something with a hoodie who's hanging out with a bunch of their friends and and coding together. Um, so the idea of it has been more social, and the idea that technology has also become more social. Um, and I think that it's only a, a good thing. And I'm hoping that the next generation of entrepreneurs can help us figure out what truly social software looks like um, instead of uh, these these walled gardens that we see now. Fascinating insights. And so uh, everybody listening here, we're going to put Ian's website and other sorts of contact links and whatnot in the description. So if you want to learn more about his work, you're welcome to click and uh, take a look. But um, as a way to kind of wrap things up, Ian, I, I think a lot of us who have heard you talk um, in this episode are going to want to learn more, but not know where to look. So is there any like resource or website or perhaps a a book or a blog or anything like that that you would recommend that the viewership here, which again is entrepreneurship educators, something we might want to check out to get a little bit more up to speed on all of these technological advancements. Yeah, there's thankfully there is a uh, breadth of information available uh, if you're looking at the right experts, and I would actually be happy to put uh, a page together with a bunch of those. Um, for your viewers so that we can put the link in this video and then go right to it and have everything from individual thought leaders they can look at to book recommendations um, and even some places if you have developers in the audience like GitHub repos where they can play with the technology. Excellent. Okay, so we'll make that available to everybody listening to the podcast. Ian, I want to thank you for your leadership in this space and for uh, sharing a really inspiring story. There were a lot of insights there and um, it was great to have you on the program. It was an absolute honor to take part. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thank you. All right. That wraps up our episode of the Existential Edge podcast. We will see you all next time.